welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 261. So oh, last... Wait, 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 what? Okay, no, 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 no. I, nope. It's not... I, oh. What? Huh? Nope. That? We're going to keep talking. Okay. No, okay. What's going on? No, I uh, Never mind. I think it's a next week thing. Forget, forget any of this. What's next week? The future? <laughs> no, like a milestone. 262. What's special about 262? Not the number directly. I think next week is five years of the MEP. Let's see. Mep episode one. It was it was February of uh, whatever five years. Apparently, Mep, according to uh, Google, is member of the European Parliament. I don't think we are a member of the European Parliament. Ah, though. Result number two is the MacFab Engineering Podcast. <laughs> uh, wait, wait. When did uh, episode one come out? Oh, Jesus! Not on our February twelfth. February 12th. Okay, so so two podcasts from now is five years. February 12th, 2016, where we talked about the op, op optimal power supply. Let, let's not even bring that topic up. Don't even say it. Oh, man, this was back when um, Microchip bought Atmel. Yeah, they've had them for five years now. Five years. And that was when FTDI was the FTDI gate. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And now <laughs> France building a huge solar roadway. This again? <laughs> Talk about that two episodes ago. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Enough reminiscing. We do that like every week. Uh, do we? Almost. That's reminiscent represent about the future then. I, <laughs> I don't think you can do that, Parker. <laughs> All right. What's up, Parker? So... Two weeks ago, one week from now, uh, we talked about automotive component shortages. <laughs> True. See how I made that in the future, but also yeah, I in the see. Past? Yeah, you're reminiscing now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talked about automotive component shortages, and one of the things I wanted to bring up there was a whole segment about um, how you can alleviate those problems, like things you can think about as you're designing your product. And we just ran out of time. We talked about like 30 minutes of like the bad stuff and never got to like the <laughs> good stuff. As we normally do. Yeah, as we normally do. So what can you do to alleviate component shortages and like component lead times in your design? Because um, this is something that Steven and I do like as we're picking our parts is probably like, this is like the number two thing I'm thinking in my brain when I'm, picking parts out hey, hey, let me let me take a, a, a stab here i haven't looked at your notes so i don't okay. know what's in your notes here just buy all your parts like way 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 in advance and buy like the world stock of them <laughs> that's one way that's how like tesla and like apple do it <laughs> okay not joking about this wmd did that with one thing like there's a there's a very specific has a in surface mount and there was one manufacturer of it and they came out with a note saying uh hey we're no longer supporting this part which basically means the world will no longer have this part and this was years ago and uh yeah we bought them all <laughs> <laughs> do you still have stock yeah yeah for sure uh, so on that note is uh back at 
pre macrofab days when I was working with still with Chris Church at Dynamic Perception, we had a product that um, it was a product before I came on board that uh, you had a, it had an optocoupler on it. It was a Joe Schmo optocoupler, except it was a really weird four pin dip, which actually for an optocoupler is not weird. That's actually kind of a normal thing for a optocoupler, except its pinout was reversed. Hmm. And so you couldn't buy any other dip for optocoupler. For some reason, this one was picked. And um, basically, like when I came on board, like at the time, like through a broker, Dynamic Perception bought like the world supply of this component. And then we did a re I did a respin of the board that basically just like SMT'd all the parts and replaced that optocoupler. Yeah, makes sense. So, no, that is not what we're going to talk about, though. It's not buy everything out and leave everyone else hung to dry. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so that's this is the number two thing I'm thinking about when I'm buying and picking parts. Number one thing is, is this part going to work for me? Right, because that's obviously the num- most important thing is if it's going to work or not. Number two is, can I get this part? for the quantity I'm going to build of this thing. Um, so the main thing I look at is like, I se- kind of separate my my processes by components as well. So like passive components, the majority of your passives, especially for digital stuff, is you can swap out a 10K resistor that's an 0603 for all the time. Like, because you're only running like five volts or 3.3 volts at a couple milliamps. Doesn't really matter. There's billions of these things out there, right? Never have to worry about them. But the thing you have to watch out for is when you start doing weird stuff with passive components, especially if your component has extraordinary specifications, in particular to the package size. So like this is like voltage ratings, wattage ratings, PPM. It could be... um, Oh, what what other like or, or capacitors like high high capacitance or really weird uh, coefficients, um, and like a small small packages and weird coefficients. Um, so what I basically when you pick a part that's weird like that in quotes, right? So let's say you need a five hundred volt uh, resistor, okay? Which is for an SMT part that's pretty high rated. Most are like two hundred volts. Um, is look around in the part you picked. So let's say I picked an 0805 that's 500 volt rated. Look around and see how many parts on the market fit that specification. If it is just yours, might not use that part. And usually the case is, depending on the package size in, in for passive components, is that dictates a lot of the specifications. And then when the manufacturer does something really weird, that's when you can do the weird stuff like 500 volts and 0805. But if you go to, let's say, a 2010 package, you can get like a whole sheet worth on DigiKey and Mauser of like ones that hit your voltage rating. So if you can avoid using, let's say, let's say you have in, you have space for a 2010 resistor. Because it's a lot larger. But it's like you have plenty of space on your board. You don't have to have an 0805 size. Then change it to a new package that has your availabilities go through the roof. 
Um, now, if you have to have an 0805 because of space reasons, um, I wonder how, Good like, luck. what's your isolation on 500 volts, like, jumping the pads on an 0805? I have no idea. I don't know what the calculation is there. Creepage would be kind of crazy, too. Yeah. But that's just an example I just pulled in my 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 brain hole. <laughs> um, capacitors are the same way. Like you can buy a ten microfarad O six O three. There's not a lot of them on the market though, and they also have really crappy uh, uh, capacitance voltage curves as well. You know, we talked about um, that exact same thing with uh, Bold Engineer. Uh, where basically if you, if you take, let's say, the three major uh, passive sizes, 0402, 0603, and 0805, let's just take those as examples. There's sort of like a bell curve for each one of those of values that each one of those fits in. And uh, and so, like, can you find a 10 microfarad 0603? Probably, but it's probably better to go with a 10 microfarad 0805 uh because that's because, right right because that probably fits on like the edge of the bell curve of values and it's yes. not an actual bell curve i'm just using that as a yeah, something yeah. to visualize the the how many components are offered in that package for that value right right yeah at the same time like uh yeah like a like a hundred picofarad you can find a a 1210 picofarad they exist but why not use an 0402 100 picofarad especially because i bet you that's actually voltage rating it could be it could be yeah. but but most of the time uh if i'm using 100 picofarad i want it to be it's likely in a situation where it's going to be like tight in the circuit yeah. and i i don't want this monster cap out there yeah that and you want it you know usually you're picking that up because you're preventing like ringing on like a crystal circuit or an oscillation circuit or something like that yeah i tuck them real close into uh, op amp stages so uh, to keep things um uh under control yeah yeah and you talked about that last week mm -hmm. um so yeah check basically for your passive components check for extraordinary specifications that and just he's like okay is this component how many of these parts meet my specification um so that's passives. Usually you're okay with passives unless you have weird stuff. Um, so then you move to active components. And this is where stuff gets a little bit harder. But there's you can separate active components into like two different categories. One are kind of like jelly bean style active components, like your discrete um, op amps and uh, um, transistors and MOSFETs and diodes, which... This, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast and kind of argued about it, but um, I considered a diode an active component, but um, it's also kind of like a passive because you don't really do anything to it in a circuit. Like, you leave it like it's got two pins, right? Input and output. <laughs> um, sure, but I, I think they are traditionally considered active components. Yeah, and so that's why, I, what is an active component? What I, makes a difference? I, I was looking up lists of of things that that constitute active versus passive uh, before this, and uh, one of the one of the items on there was if it's active. Uh, gosh, okay, so if it's active, it requires a particular voltage to work. That's a I, I stripped that that down, uh, which that's semi true, or that is true of diodes, I should say. And then um, the the other argument is. Um, 
active components are nonlinear by nature and passive components in their truest form are li- uh, linear by nature. Yeah, because I brought up uh, capacitors are technically, like in real life, aren't technically linear because changing the voltage changes how much capacitance they have. Um, whereas, it, it, well, that also depends on the type of capacitor. But, yeah, but type, yeah. Uh, that's ceramic capacitors, yeah. I would say. Right. Which yeah, is like that's, 99% of caps. Yeah, but that's, again, in the ideal sense... Then yeah, a capacitor, a, an ideal capacitor is a linear device, and a ideal diode is a non-linear device, right? That's right. Yeah, it's got but, the knee. But but I made the how argument with Parker, like depending on how like wherever you look at the curve, you can find linear portions of the curve of a diode. You mean if you look at a diode like a digital device? Yeah, right. Instead of an analog device, would you have infinite, sca- infinite resolution? <laughs> that <laughs> potentiometer. Oh, oh yeah, man. geez, that was old. Long time ago, we found a data sheet for a potentiometer that it was like a five K, just you know, guitar knob trim pot. Or it was Borns pot. Yeah, but like it says under resolution, it said theoretically infinite. <laughs> I, they're not incorrect. Uh, if you if you move the wiper atom by atom, <laughs> oh, it is then discrete. The argument remains the same. Yeah, the same argument from four <laughs> years, four five years ago. ago. Oh, that's great. So, so you know about like the four fundamental electronic components, right? There's. I thought you were talking about the four horsemen, but okay. Uh, they could be. The resistor, the capacitor, the the, mem, uh, the inductor, and then there's the fourth, the memristor. Yeah, the memristor. So resistor, capacitor, inductor are all uh, linear, but the memristor is not. Interesting. So it's a fundamental component. I I don't think it's. I think it's considered a passive component. Yeah, because uh, it's just a. Oh man, it's just remem- It remembers how much current. It's a current device. It remembers how much current has flowed through it. Right. It changes its resistance base level of how much current has flowed through it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Back. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Active components. uh, That was what we're talking about. But in discrete style, which are diodes, MOSFETs, stuff like that, um, usually you can get alternatives for those two. And so when you're picking those components is also pick... Um, parts that you can get, you know, multiple like different manufacturers are building them in different in the same package, right? Mm-hmm. Like a TO two twenty, that's a through hole part, but you can you can buy a MOSFET that an N channel MOSFET that's probably going to work from like eight different manufacturers, and all those manufacturers probably actually sell like ten different MOSFETs that will work for your application. You know, a, a great example uh, above and beyond this. Okay, so say you, you you got you got fancy. I don't know. Let's say I'm just going to say motor controller or something like that. You need some MOSFETs to drive, or let's just say an H bridge kind of thing, and uh, and you're designing the next whiz bang H bridge out there, and it's going to be the best H bridge ever. And you know you need a lifespan of ten years that this product is going to run, right? So you you got these two MOSFETs that you're looking at. One comes in this like patented Uber power pack 
9000 package that's super cool by this place and it and it lock oh it's going to solve all your problems and then this other one it's not as flashy and it's not as cool but it comes in a regular d pack and it'll work just fine for your application which one do you pick probably the d pack one right because the, down because the road, i have a package already designed my eda tool <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, so Parker makes it a little bit, but but the D pack one because you, it's a lot easier to find another D pack MOSFET down the road as opposed to Ultra Power Pack nine thousand from whatever company that might go out of business, right? Yeah, uh, I really wanted a Ultra Power Pack nine thousand package though. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I mean, just go look at every MOSFET manufacturer. They have their super, like, mega fr- frozen cool package or whatever they call it. Like, they always have some kind of yeah. buzzword around them. And there's those new style of MOSFET packages that had, like, the big thermal pad that come out to the, like, four fingers. And they're, they're really flat. flat. And they're really flat, yeah. Yeah, those so you are designed, stick a big chunk of aluminum on them. Yeah, those are designed to go right on a heat sink. And back in five years ago or six years ago when we started the podcast, those were kind of new. Right. Now, a lot of manufacturers make those. So right. those are probably completely fine to make, uh, to use now in your designs in terms of supply chain stuff. So yeah, you can diversify that way. Basically, it's looking at different packages, diodes, same way. Um, now, then you get to the other part of active components that are is very difficult to find alternatives, if at all. And that's like integrated components, like microcontrollers, uh, ADCs, um, that kind of stuff. Um, anything that's uh, – um, I was going to say like multi-leaded, like uh, like a QFN or QFP. or But that was like QFNs don't have leads. <laughs> so <laughs> um, Anything that's so, over single function, right? Yeah, over single function is a good way to put it. Um, that gets really difficult a lot. Sometimes you might be able to find like a different family of micro or same family microcontroller, but it's got like a different RAM setup or like a different amount of RAM or ROM and then, or a different function you're not using. Um, or you might be able to find, oh, um, this uh, uh, QFP and QFN share the same pinout and they're the same number of pins and you can fit the qfn inside the qfp package on your board so you can use either one um we you know i've seen that before i've also seen like actually with bgas done that way too like they had the bga and then they had a qfp package and they were just nested inside of each other um which helps you out on on your supply chain you know oh the qfp is out of stock let's use the bgas or the bga is out of stock use the qfps and then sometimes you can get different that's like one kind of different packaging and then there's the other kind of packaging which is how do you actually get it from the manufacturer or distributor is it on reel or in tray or in tubes because sometimes the manufacturer will spec that as a different part number like uh ftdi is famous for doing like dash tr at the end of their part numbers for tape reel mm-hmm. some manufacturers don't specify that um but most most of them seem to have different part numbers for how the packaging from like how it's physically packaged versus electrically packaged. Uh, oh uh, yeah, we, we've all seen that big uh, spreadsheet at the bottom of every Texas Instruments data sheet that has oh, the bazillion parts and all their different yeah, packaging like, styles. And it's like PZR package, and you're like, what is PZR? So you have to go back up and find <laughs> the mechanical drawing of it. Right. You go, okay, that's the, that's the TSOP, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, 
So sometimes you can get lucky there. It's basically like, okay, the TR is gone. Oh, the uh, the dash T, the tube version, is available. So you can you can spec that also as well. So you can go TR, and then you can put T as your alternative. Um, yeah, I'd like to hear more about what other people have to say about like the integrated component swapping. Is like how to make that better because. I don't, besides like that, there's not really any good solutions, I don't think. Hmm. I mean, if you're looking at the uh, the hierarchy of parts that you're talking about here, these are sort of the top of the pyramid, as in like, you're going to have the fewest amount of these uh, most of the time in your design. And so um, if one goes obsolete it's easier to put your effort into replacing one of these than it is saying like oh damn that 0402 3000 microfarad cap that i was looking for went obsolete i'm gonna have to redesign everything you know? yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what did i call those kind of part? i i can't remember what i was calling those parts um oh like critical path components mm -hmm. uh basically parts you just can't have a sub for um, oh right, you know, uh, and it, that that brings up an interesting point about like the beginnings of of design. Like, there's so many different des design philosophies, but before you even put pen to paper or you you drop parts onto a schematic, there's there's a, like an exploratory. Um, I don't know, phase where you're looking at like, is this product even worth looking at? And, and even if you don't think you do that, you probably still do it. Cause like, if you have this idea in your mind where it's like, Oh, I'm going to go make a thing. Like you just pass that phase by saying you're going to go make that thing. Cause it like, it clicked in your mind as being like, Oh, this is good to do. It passed the sniff test. Right. But, but on like, I say a, a more grand scale, like if you have to make a presentation to, I don't know, the, the executive team and say, Hey, this, I want to make this product and here's what it'll do. And this is why it's whiz bang. Um, at that point, one thing that's, that's uh, something really important to kind of keep in mind is if you're, designing your product around say a chip or an ic that does that super awesome cool function that you want and it's the only way to execute it you're building yourself kind of a um a trap in a way that's not to say that um it's not worth doing it's just you need to build a good reason as to why you need to do it uh you know, I deal with that a lot in the audio industry where like somebody will come up with a chip where it's like, oh, it does this audio thing that's really, really cool. And you can only do it if you buy this one chip. And a lot of people buy that one chip. And what ends up happening, I've seen a lot of times where like that chip goes, uh, that company goes out of business. And now that product cannot be built anymore. Or you end up getting the whole market filled with a bunch of people who also had your exact same idea of using that same exact chip. And they just, everyone just used the, uh, the example in the data sheet as to like, here's how to execute it. So you get 5,500 products that are all doing the exact same thing with the exact same circuit inside. So like, keep that in mind when developing something, um, uh, like that, that kind of goes into that exploratory phase I was talking about. One more thing for me tonight, or whenever you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> is uh, connectors. And connectors, we've said on the podcast, are like the bane of your existence when trying to find, because you got to find that right connector. 
But now you got to find another alternative part connector that works with that part, with that footprint, right? Sometimes you can skirt that by having different coatings or different plating. Like Molex is like, in my mind, famous for that. Because um, when you go on their, da- their data sheets, they'll have like pages of like, these are the alternative parts that fit in this family. And then whole, uh, these are all the plating options. So we have like we have gold, but we have gold that's over brass. We have gold that's over tin. We have gold that's over bronze phosphus, uh, phosphate uh, pins, like all the different kind of materials in there. And um, and then we have like you know tin. And we have bare uh, uh, connect connectors. So so make sure like if you're specking it out, you might not need fine gold connectors you might be able to get away with tin right sure and so take a look at that too is like you know if you're using connectors that have really low volume like because they're really expensive or or uh that's uh, that's actually another thing is to look at is also don't just look at what distributors have because what i just said they're expensive components like if your components like 30 to 40 dollars like let's say an fpga Mauser and Digikey is not going to keep 10,000 of those on their shelves. They're going to keep like a tray of them, maybe. And so you might have to actually contact like Mauser Digikey or your contact manufacturer directly and be like, hey, I need like 10,000 of these potentially. What does that look like? What is my lead time look like to actually get 10,000 of those like so we can build with this? Mm. Because, you know, if you try to call up, let's say Altera, which is now Intel, right? Or is it Silenx? I can't remember. I can't remember who by who. <laughs> um, you can't. They, if you call them up and you're just like Joe Schmo, they're probably not going to talk to you. No, um, I I could tell you from experience, like you're not getting a, an answer. Yeah. So you you're better off probably working through another distributor like Mauser or Digikey or with your contract manufacturer directly and being like, hey, I'm designing a new product. Uh, and there's only a couple of these on like there's like ten at Mauser, but if I can use this part, I need like ten thousand. What's that look like? And they can give you like okay, that's we can actually get you ten thousand in a couple months or never or next week. You know, uh, two more two more quick design things that uh, that I, I try to employ that uh, I think is is worthwhile. Um, the, the the note on diodes here reminds me of um, zeners and things. Zener diodes uh, come in a variety. Like you can get you can get almost any voltage you want in a zener. And uh, the thing about zeners is 13.33 like thirteen point three three volts. That's a great example of something you probably yeah. shouldn't pick unless it is like the magic zener that you must absolutely have. What's the elite zener? Well, pick uh, like if if thirteen point three three is like three seven. Oh, th- sorry, three seven. Repeating. Uh, w- would a twelve volt zener work in that situation, or would a fifteen volt zener, or something that will last a lot longer? Twelve and fifteen are going to be around for a long time. Let's put it this way. But one three three seven is probably not. So, but it gives you that right tone. <laughs> yeah, that, that elite tone. Um, <laughs> you know, and another thing, too, resistor values, they, 
they're not always fixed. There are, you know, there's the different categories of resistor, like E24 and E96 or whatever they are. Um, a lot of times it is actually cheaper to just series and parallel resistors to get a more unique value than to go spec a single unique value that, you know, has your secret sauce or is like in your approved vendor list. Uh, you know, so consider like great, great example with this that goes through my mind all the time. A 50 K resistor doesn't actually exist. I was going to say 5k is the same thing. <laughs> 5k. Yeah. Cause you get 49.9 K or 4.99 K or whatnot. Nine, nine. Yeah. Okay. So you could spec a, a 49.9 K and deal with whatever error there, there is if you're using in like a gain circuit or whatever d- divider, or just put 200 Ks in parallel and then you actually get 50 K. And I I'm using quotes here, actually get 50 K, but you get, so, and on, the beautiful thing about that is it's one less skew if that's the only place you're um, you're putting that. I usually go and sanitize all of my circuits now whenever I'm done like designing them, and I look at I look at my list of resistors. I actually print them out and I see wh- how many times have I used this value and this value and this value, and I look at the very bottom of that list and I see how many resistors I have where they're like single value because single use means that somebody has to go through the effort of putting a reel on a feeder for it to put one resistor down could i use any of those resistors at the top of my list to account for those ones down at the bottom and most of the time i can and and most of the time whenever i scrub circuits like that i'll get rid of five six seven unique line items by just series and parallel yeah it means you spend a a very minimal amount more per board, but it costs more to to have a guy put um, uh, parts on a reel than it does for you to put two extra resistors on a board. So it's worth considering. And for the future, if you have like a weird value, always ask yourself, do you really need a r- weird value? Like, is it super required that you have 365.24 ohms in, in your LED lighting circuit, you know? So... Not with a circuit board design, but with a a Jeep project I've been working on. This this came up, and uh, I'm working on the the rear defroster, replacing the rear defroster on the wagon. And when you I ohmed out the whole grid, and it's like 0.1 ohm. Okay, well, put 12 volts across that, and yeah, that's that's a lot of power. And it's up, you're only supposed to pull about 12 amps. So your grid needs to be like one ohm. Okay. So I'm like, okay, I need to put it in series resistor. Okay. Calculate it out. It's like 150 watts. Trying to find a 150 watt one ohm. It's pretty hard to find a pa- that on like, you know, Amazon. You can probably go to Mauser and get it. But I'm like, I was being lazy. But I can get. <laughs> Lazier than Mauser. Yeah. I can get two. 100 watt two ohm resistors and just put them in parallel yeah there you go and it was that ended up being cheaper than getting 150 water sure and i'm like oh good now i have 200 watts of dissipation yeah yeah and we proved a long time ago that if you put parts in uh in parallel like you get you get a tolerance bonus right sure (laughs) two parts in parallel is not going to give you much of it my defroster grid really needs that Hey, you want to hit 12.000 amps, right? Sure. <laughs> Somewhere in that range is good enough. 
plus or minus an amp. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like a 20 amp fuse, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're it's good. Be fine. Okay, so that's all I have on that. That's a big, meaty, juicy topic. Yeah, that was a 30-minute topic. Yeah. That was beefcake. Um, okay, so let's follow that up with a really short one. Um, so I've, I I was thinking about what, what I talked about last week about, like, search features in 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 the big vendors and stuff and i want to add one thing that i think would be really cool and this is totally like a no self-learning ai oh god wouldn't that be amazing well actually that that could that could apply to this um in a way now now this is totally like pie in the sky would absolutely love this and this would be like the robots are more intelligent than us we don't need designers at this point (laughs) but but no okay we just get our mojitos and drink out on the beach. So I ran into a situation actually earlier this week where I had a transistor, or I needed a circuit that had an NPN and a PNP transistor. I didn't have really strict requirements about those transistors, but I did kind of want them to be similar. Um, they didn't have to be, but and and in similar, I'm I'm meaning more like package than characteristic they just have to be able to handle an easy task uh so i went i we have one of these in stock right now at the at the factory so i went and i grabbed that and i was like cool this one will work and it was an an npn and i was like i want to know what is the complement of this npn uh and most not most of it some of the time if you find an npn there is a pnp complement to it And I guessed the the PNP number and got it right, like just flat out guessed it. So so the the transistor I was using is the is the BCP fifty four, which is an NPN moderate small power transistor. And I just guessed well, if I put in BCP fifty two, will that be the NPN or sorry the the PNP version? And lo and behold, it was. And like, so how how did you figure that out though? Because I've dealt with enough transistors that typically the last digit, you just change it. Ah, well, because NPN minus PNP is not two. <laughs> right. Of course. Well, like the the classic 3906 and 3904, they're two digits away from each other. Uh, the small signal, like everyone on Earth has used those. Uh, so, like, I just guessed and I got it right. But I was thinking, like, how cool would it be if I could type in blah, 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 npn and it would be you know it's sort of like i i I get that not everyone needs to know the complement to their transistors but it would be awesome if my search results would be like oh if you need to know the complement it's this part and the and by complement i mean it's just the npn version in the exact same package exact same pinout everything is is identical so and I, I actually purchased the transistor and tested it in some circuits and it worked out really well for me. But it, it would just be really nice to know what the complement of a product is. Um, now, at the same time, if you take that and you make it way more difficult for an AI, as if it's not already difficult to be able to detect a, uh, a uh, complement, I would love it if I found a connector and my search results would be like oh this is the mating male or female part to it or all of these parts will connect mm. into the other part. i've seen some connector uh companies start doing that um what was it um jst does that with yep. their family connectors they'll have you know they'll have this huge grid of like 
this is like the connectors and then this is like the terminals you might you can use with each one and they're they're um the stuff they hook up into and all that good stuff yep yep which that's great if you if you're going and searching from all the manufacturers websites themselves because a lot of them provide that information um but it would be cool if my big vendors would do that now i understand what i'm asking for right there is ridiculous but that's like super cool future stuff <laughs> future stuff cyber search Okay, uh, no, another topic uh, I want to go over. I, I ran into a video be, uh, this, this week. Uh, I think Al Williams actually wrote an article on Hackaday about this. Uh, it's, it's about PCB crosstalk. So the video is, uh, is made by a guy named uh, Robert Furanek. I probably pronounced that uh, incorrectly. I've watched a handful of his videos, and he is fantastic. He takes electrical engineering concepts, and he breaks them down, and he makes them... He, he breaks them down in a way that there's still like four electrical engineers. It's not like breaking them down for just like anyone, but he takes really difficult stuff and he explores it. And these videos are fantastic. <clears throat> so he has a vi uh, video with a, uh, with a guy named um, Eric Bogatin where they talk about PCB crosstalk and they, they don't go into like the nitty gritty math behind things. So it's not like that awful electromagnetics class that you had to take. But it's way more practical stuff. It's practical in terms of like, okay, visualizing what the problem is, how it manifests, and and ways to mitigate the problem. And so uh, we'll post up the link to this. It's like a 50-minute video talking about PCB crosstalk, and it is excellent, if you ask me. So I, I wanted to talk about PCB crosstalk um, in, in this segment real quick and, and talk about the two kind of things that really contribute to PCB crosstalk and then uh, list out some things on uh, some methods on how to mitigate it. So there's the two main aspects that, that contribute to it is capacitive coupling and inductive coupling. And those words are loaded there uh, because it's not exactly capacitively coupling and not exactly inductive coupling, but just like those are ways of visualizing it and the, the the yeah, I was about to say visualization, but like the um, the way to understand it is to think of it like that. Exactly, exactly. And they go through that on the, in in this video. So capacitive coupling uh, is will basically couple voltage spikes from one track to another, and inductive coupling will uh, mutually conduct current from one trace to another. So you have two things that you're battling when you're talking about PCB crosstalk. And PCB crosstalk is mainly a, uh, due to uh, traces running in parallel to each other uh, close on a PCB. Which, if you look at PCBs, or, or if you, look, if you like, conceptualize a PCB, a lot of times you, you get those like really cool images in your mind, or if you go to Google even even type in PCB, where there's like 50 tracks like running a parallel to each other, and then they all make a cool 45 look, and then they all like turn. And and if you think about like a ton of different tracks running next to each other, very close in proximity, and running exactly parallel, like that, in a lot of ways, that can spell disaster for your board, um, especially some of the situations that they were mentioning in this video is, you know, one, one trace has large voltage spikes on it and it was causing a microcontroller to uh, go into interrupt loops 
when it shouldn't because it was because two tracks were running next to each other and one had an interrupt trigger on it so another track was causing the 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 pcb to like basically go into like an infinite loop where it was like trying to spit something out and then interrupting itself so okay so basically i'm not going to try to recreate this video on this podcast uh i think you should just go and and listen to it it's a it's like i said it's super great but I, uh, what I want to do is is just like between the two of us kind of like walk through what are some ways that we know right now that we can mitigate uh, crosstalk between two lines on a PCB. I actually wrote down a list, so I have some things, but I kind of want to get your thoughts on it, Parker. So one, make your PCB really, really big and put them on opposite sides of the, of the board. <laughs> well, I said, I said mitigate. I didn't say like completely get rid of it. <laughs> Um, but that, no, that is one is like, is keep what well, I do. Let's, let's like what I do is keep your high power or high current traces away from data traces. Yeah. That's, that's basically rule number one. I, I would say. So like, if you look at the big, big one would be like the pinatar pinball board, the, all the high power stuff for like the power input for like, I say the low voltage side, which is 12 volts and down that's in its one part of the board that all the filtering all the fuses for that all the um uh current monitoring for that is in one section of the board all the 50 volt high voltage stuff is in one section of the board and then the low voltage signals are on its own separate part of the board and then they just go out and 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 have to you know they just touch those areas to pick up signals and stuff or send signals out in terms of like triggering a MOSFET or something like that. Um, and so keeping stuff separated as much as you can within your space constraints is like probably the easiest way to mitigate crosstalk. Right. Yeah. So th that's actually the first thing I put on the list is increasing trace separation. And that's just like across the board. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, across the board, uh, keeping trace separation just larger everywhere if, uh, as much as you can. So in other words, to flip that around, uh, say more like avoid running traces directly next to each other, uh, especially over long um, spaces. If you have to for a short period, uh, short section, you know, you'll just have to accept the, the results of that. But the, the, the effective um, capacitive or the effective capacitor that goes in between them becomes a lot smaller the further your distance is away from each other and the the uh, smaller the actual parallel section of those traces are so basically more space more better right mm -hmm. and then the other thing is when you have to, if you have to run traces let's say on another side of the board and uh, to cross is basically minimize how much they are parallel mm -hmm. and so like if you're crossing your traces so like let's say you have uh, a couple traces that are running left to right and you need to have a trace that goes from top to bottom well don't run them parallel to each other for a bit and then kick up right is actually just try to jump as fast as you can across them right right and 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 so the <laughs> it's funny because a lot of times it's easy to think about a layer as like an individual thing and other layers as like completely individual separate things. And that's just totally not right. Uh, 
because yeah, if you run two traces parallel on one layer, you're creating a capacitor between those two or you're creating capacitance between those two traces. But if you run them parallel on two separate layers, you're doing the exact same thing in a different axis. Uh, it's so you're not you're not mitigating anything by running them parallel on two different tra- uh, layers. Now it 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 will be different because you now have a different dielectric in between them, and you ha- you potentially have more space in between them. But you're not necessarily solving the problem by doing that. And and I think one of the one of the key things is if you have to cross traces that you know are potentially problematic, cross them at ninety degrees and cross them at 90 degrees on separate layers. And that kind of gives you the, the, your best situation there. I'd like to see you try to cross a signal, two different signals on the same layer. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so here's another one that's, that's fun. Um, let's, let's consider we're not doing two layer boards. Let's say uh, four and above. Where you put your ground plane actually matters, right? So a lot of times it's easy to say, oh, my top is signals and my bottom layer is ground plane. That may not be optimal uh, for, for reducing crosstalk. Uh, so if, if take, for instance, another situation where you have your top plane as signals and then the plane directly beneath that is ground, you've now placed your ground significantly closer to your actual signals. And what ground or a reference plane does is it actually kind of groups and gathers uh, electromagnetic field lines around the trace and it can actually, in a way, steer them away from uh, adjacent traces. So it's super complex and I'm, I'm not doing it justice by saying this once again, watch the video. It gives a lot better ideas on it, but you can, uh, you can help mitigate crosstalk between two traces by putting your reference plane closer to the actual traces. And by the way, I didn't know this. Uh, I love this by the way, that the, whatever trace is crosstalking to another trace, whichever one is the one that's, the problem is called the aggressor and the one that's like being crosstalked to is the victim. <laughs> like, <laughs> How great is that? The aggressor. So, uh, so yeah, where you place your ground reference inside of your, uh, your four layer board, whichever plane you have to accept what the, you know, the impact of doing that is. And, you know, whatever traces you have that are like very sensitive traces, it helps to put them on a layer that's closer to the ground plane as opposed to one that's further separated from it. Uh, There's three other things that you can do right off the top of my head that technically work, but you don't normally have control over these three things, but they're just, I guess it's like academic to consider them. If you change the voltage, in other words, you're, you know, your, your digital step doesn't have to go as far, you reduce crosstalk. If you change the current, in other words, the load is higher uh, and you have less current, then you'll have less con- uh, current, um, sorry, mutual conductance, less crosstalk. And then the last one is if you lower the DVDT, so the change in voltage over change in time. So in other words, the speed. Lower your frequency. Yeah. Or, or like on a square wave, the the step, if you, if you make mm-hmm. the step slower, you slew it. That also helps, um, with, with changing it. But most of the time you don't have choices on those three things. So, but 
like I said, academic, it's worth considering. I, I oh oh I'm actually thinking about it completely wrongly. Yeah, okay, the slew. I'm thinking about the actual frequency slowing that down, which actually would that would reduce cross talk. But you're talking about reducing the slew, which would reduce um especially on a square wave, it would reduce how many high frequency uh uh events come off off that that square wave well okay yeah so actually so a square wave is is a is a interesting case right because if you reduce the frequency then yeah you'll reduce the uh number of events yeah you'll reduce the number of of events but let's say that the uh the edge on it is a one nanosecond rise or one nanosecond fall like that still can ring and and cross Mm -hmm. through even on a tenth of a hurt signal it just happens to crosstalk one tenth of a hurt, you know. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I was thinking about it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and here's the thing: like, we've actually run into this at work with some things where we kind of had an unavoidable situation where we had traces running in parallel, and and even down into the audio range, we ran into some crosstalk situation where two channels on on one of our modules like just slightly bleed to each other and uh, and it kind of sucks so we, we we have to mitigate that but uh the so you know take as many of these things as you can and apply them to uh to your signals and you'll you'll likely get uh re- results right away now <laughs> there's a lot of other things that ripple through there too, right? Because like now you you still have to consider EMI, you still have to consider FCC, you still have to consider all this other crap. This is more like before all that stuff. This is more about like, well, my circuit just has to work <laughs> first. Well, yeah, but doing a lot of this stuff helps you with those other things like FCC and EMI uh, emissions. That's right. Like like all what we just talked about is what I I actually do, I don't even think about it as for crosstalk I think about it as I got past FCC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But in the end it's the same thing. What is crosstalk? It is the aggressor emitting on the victim. Yeah. Yeah, effectively. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess FCC is just like they don't care if you have aggressors in victims on your board. They just want your aggressors not talking to the rest of the world. <laughs> The, yes, exactly. they don't care if your board works. They just don't want it polluting. <laughs> so uh, there's one other thing that uh, I think is is worth talking about that appears to be crosstalk, but it actually ends up just being a design flaw that isn't necessarily crosstalk. Um, and and they don't talk about this in this video. This is uh, something I've I've run into myself. I call it feed forward current. I, it probably has a, a correct name, but I don't really know what it is. So uh, if if you are running uh, unregulated power supply rails or moderately regulated power supply rails, all of the items or not items, all the circuits that pull power from that rail uh, can reflect whatever their current is up onto the power supply rail. And if you have any kind of resistance in your power supply rail, then the voltage can actually fluctuate on your power supply rail. And if your voltage fluctuates on your power supply rail, you're now feed forwarding whatever signals you have on your individual circuits to all the other circuits. And so it's different from like a ground lift. It's actually the power supply rails moving. It's like oscillating. Yeah, effectively, uh, being modulated by whatever signal is going in 
and that can feed forward. I actually ran into that in uh, that situation not too long ago on a on a circuit where if if you took the 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 volume effectively down on on my circuits, the volume happened somewhere downstream in uh, in my circuit from my input, which means that I have active circuitry between my input and my volume knob. So if you have your volume knob all the way down, that doesn't mean that the, the circuitry in between isn't fluctuating with your input signal. And so I could have my volume all the way down and then turn stuff up later in the circuit and I could detect my signal. It was actually bypassing my volume knob effectively because my power supply rails were not regulated well enough. And that's not a situation we run into very often because we typically have voltage regulators that, um, that handle that. And most of our active circuitry have uh, PSRR or power supply rejection ratio that is pretty damn good. Uh, like you can get PSRRs in like the 100, 120, 140 de uh, dB range now. Uh, so like even if your power supply rails wiggle a little bit, uh, it's not going to leak through your active circuits. But, you know, take an old radio, for example, where you'll have discrete transistor stages. The, the, P the power supply rejection ratio on a discrete transistor stage is awful. It's t virtually non-existent. So if you wiggle the power supply rails, the whole radio is going to wiggle, right? Uh, so, but, and the thing is, like, that can very, very easily be um, interpreted as crosstalk. And it's not technically crosstalk. That's just feed-forward current or whatever the official term is for that. So... I don't know. If you're diagnosing a circuit and you see that, don't immediately just go, well, that's crosstalk. Like, it might not be. Sounds good to me. I've never experienced that before. So, experience crosstalk, not feed forward current. Yeah, like I said, in most modern circuits, we have well-regulated power supply rails. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. Like, I guess it could happen in, in a situation where you say you have a switch mode power supply and then you put some passive filtering after it to kind of get rid of some of the junk and noise on it uh you could experience that situation because the the passive filtering um it's buffering your active it's but yeah it's buffering and it's an impedance in line so that's a possibility yeah cool so that possibility was the macfab engineering podcast we are your hosts parker Dillman and Stephen craig later everyone take it easy Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast and making our podcast the second best electronics podcast on the entire internet, according to random people on Reddit. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. I've made <laughs> Steven is just laughing like crazy. I just dropped that on him. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, at, at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel, the second best electronics Slack channel on the internet, according to this person right here. Uh, it's MacFab.com slash Slack is how you get an invite.